everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Casey the Travel Planner. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for not giving us too hard a time about taking a summer vacation last week. Uh, I was out of town. I was in Alaska. Patrick was out of town. I'll let you tell him about it. I'll let him tell you about his trip when he comes back in here next week. But you'll notice that he's not here today. Um, it is going to be me solo today. Um, and so if you're tuning in in order to hear Patrick's silky smooth voice, I apologize. Um, my wife suggested that because I'm solo on the podcast today that I should dedicate the entire episode to a review of the movie Solo, uh, which I've now seen three times. But I'm not going to do that because I know that folks aren't necessarily turning in to, uh, tuning in to, to, to hear what I have to say about Star Wars. I will say it's a good movie. If you've heard bad things about it, those are just haters. Um, today is July 1st. It's Bobby Bonilla Day. For those of you who follow professional baseball, uh, today is the day that the New York Mets are going to be paying one point. $1.9 million to their former player Bobby Bonilla. Uh, they do it every July 1st uh, from 2011 through 2035. Uh, 25 years worth of, of $1.19 million payments going to this former baseball player. Uh, specifically, he, get, he gets $1,193,248.20 every July 1st, uh, now through, through 2035. Uh, as those of you who are baseball fans might know, back in 2000, they owed him $5.9 million. And they didn't want to pay him $5.9 million to play this last season. They wanted to buy out the rest of his contract. So rather than paying him $5.9 million right then, his agent worked it out where he would get $1.19 million every year for 25 years, starting in 2011. Um, pretty sweet deal, I would say. Uh, certainly from a gross money point of view, that he's going to get you know roughly, what, two. million over the course of the next 25 years, despite the fact he's not even playing baseball. Um, But um, those of you who know more about investment and banking might push back a little bit on that, and I'll just sort of say, okay, yeah, if he would have gotten the money uh, $5.9 million back in 2000 and begun investing it, then maybe it would give him an even better return now. I'm not sure. But but one way or another, yeah, today is the day that the Mets are going to be paying out Bobby Bonilla his $1.19 million. Um, the World Cup is also going on right now. Um, I imagine a lot of folks have been watching the World Cup um, as it's moving out of the uh, the knockout rounds and into the uh, the final round of 16 here. Uh, it's taking place from Moscow. We talked about it. We referred to it a couple of times uh, when we've talked about all the the drug issues in Moscow and that the. Uh, the, the FIFA, the, the uh, World Governing Organization for Soccer, has been pretty quiet, um, entirely quiet on all the drug accusations around Russia, even though the, uh, the, the, the World Cup was going to be in Russia, um, but pretty quiet about it over the course of the past six months. But anyway, uh, besides that, putting that aside, uh, I did want to point out for those of you who have been watching the World Cup and who are fans of the World Cup, there was a good article on 538.com this past week about stoppage time. Um, 538.com, if you're into numbers, uh, you might be really into that. Like if you read the book Freakonomics back in the day or if you listen to their podcast now, you might really like going to 538 if you don't already. Um, 538, they do a lot of political uh, polling and that kind of thing, and they, they combine together a lot of political polls. So like the the one of the, the lead things or, or one of the, the constant things that you can always find is the current approval rating for the President of the United States, for example. Uh, and it's not just his approval rating, but it's his, his disapproval rating and then also how that compares to uh, every president going back to Harry Truman um, at this point in their presidency. So it's kind of interesting stuff for, for um, 
statistics junkies. But um, what they did um, is they got a group of people together, a group of their researchers together, and they timed uh, with stopwatches the stoppage time during the first 32 games played of the World Cup. So they had 32 different people or 16 different people, however many different people, sat there, and every time the ball stopped, they they hit their watches. Now, um, they did it according to the rules that are laid out by FIFA um, as to when stoppage time should be. Now, I should probably back up here just a second. For those of you who aren't soccer fans or those of you who aren't following the World Cup, um, a quick aside here. Uh, at the end of every soccer game, or actually at the end of every half, um, the, the referee will they'll announce, okay, we're adding this much time to the end of this half. It's supposed to be two 45-minute halves, but the referee has the license for when the ball stops to be able to add time to the clock such that the, the halves might be 47 minutes or 48 and a half minutes or something like that. And they announce it, the fourth referee announces it with this big, huge board and says, you know, we're adding six minutes to this half here. Um, and that's not insignificant. Um, 15% of all the goals in that were scored in those games, in those 32 games they timed, were scored during that extra time. And so, you know, adding this extra time is not insignificant. Usually they add somewhere around about seven minutes. They found that the... Uh, the, the people that were timing the, the, the games for 538, uh, those 32 games of the World Cup, found that, that the average stoppage time in the games that they recorded was 6 minutes and 59 seconds. So in addition to the 90 minutes that the, the clock would normally go, uh, generally speaking, the referees would add 6 minutes and 59 seconds to the game. Now, sometimes they were as high as, you know, eight minutes and 50 seconds. Sometimes it's as low as four and a half minutes, but the average was, you know, right there at about seven minutes, six minutes and 59 seconds. Uh, but anyway, back to, to the 538 timers. They, they found that over the course of those 32 games, there were 3,194 ball stoppages. So the ball went out of play or there was an injury or there was a citation or something like that. Uh, almost or a little bit over 3,000 times, 3,194 times. Um, or, in other words, the ball basically stops moving. It leaves the, the field of play, or they have to stop play about once every 58 seconds. Now, side note on that, you know, soccer on the one hand is, is very high action, but, yeah, if the ball is stopping once every 58 seconds, that does kind of seem to bolster the argument that a lot of people I know who aren't soccer fans uh, say about the way the action moves. They say there's too much stopping that it doesn't move fast enough. Um, of course, a lot of those people are also baseball fans and and uh, and football fans where there's constant stoppage, so I don't totally get that. But anyway, um, the average time, like I said, for flash on the board for those 32 games was 6 minutes and 59 seconds. That includes both halves. Um, and by the calculations of the people from 538, which again adhered to FIFA's rules on when the clock should be stopped, the time that should have been added to each game was on average 13 minutes and 10 seconds. That means that the stoppage time was roughly about half of what it should have been for most games. Um, it should have been an average of 13 minutes and 10 seconds. Instead, it was an average of 6 minutes and 59 seconds. So to give a couple of specific examples, Morocco versus Iran. Morocco versus Iran, they added 8 minutes of stoppage time to the game. Um, but in fact, the ball was stopped for 18 minutes and 49 seconds. So that's 10 minutes and 49 seconds of difference between the amount of stoppage time the refs gave and the amount of time that, that uh, the ball was actually stopped. 
Uh, Tunisia versus England. Uh, they gave 7 minutes and 11 seconds of stoppage time, but in fact the ball was stopped 17 minutes and 37 seconds. Argentina versus Croatia. 6 minutes and 13 seconds of stoppage time, when in fact there was 16 minutes and 34 seconds of stoppage time. Japan versus Senegal. 4 minutes and 59 seconds versus uh, 15 minutes and 2 seconds of actual stoppage time. So uh, about a 10 minute difference there. Belgium versus Tunisia. Striking one. Belgium versus Tunisia. They gave seven minutes and thirteen minutes or thirteen seconds of extra stoppage time, uh, in addition to the ninety minutes of regulation. And in fact, the ball was stopped for twenty minutes and fifty-eight seconds. Um, so a pretty profound difference there. Uh, nearly three times as, as as long the ball was actually stopped than the amount of stoppage game they, the uh, stoppage time they gave there at the end. Um, also of note, I said that the the average game lasted about ninety-seven minutes. And so, you know, 245 minutes, 97 minutes with that average of 6 minutes, 6 minutes and 59 seconds. So that's 97 minutes. The ball was generally in play for only about 55 minutes on average, meaning 43% of the game is lost to dead ball time. 43% of the game is lost to dead ball time. Uh, 55 minutes on average, the ball is in play and moving and action is taking place. And 42 minutes on average, the ball is not really doing anything for, for a total of 43% of, of the game. Uh, the biggest contributors to stop times are free kicks, which accounted for 10 minutes and 29 seconds of stop time on average per game. And that's about 10.8% of total game time. A uh, second was throw-ins, which is 7 minutes and 50 seconds total it takes to simply gather up the ball and throw it back into play. Uh, that's about 8.1% of total time. And so between those two things, free kicks and throw-ins, uh, that's about a fifth of the game time there. It's almost 20% of the game time that's lost to, uh, to to the ball being stopped just to throw it in or just to do a free kick after a penalty there. Um, so, yeah, anyway, something to add into your enjoyment or perhaps your lack of enjoyment of, of, of the World Cup there as you are watching over the course of the next little while here. Um, so, start of July here, July 1st, first week of July. Yes, it means World Cup. Yes, it's Bayonia Day. Um, but it also, here around Atlanta, actually means that the Peachtree Road Race is this week. And uh, July 4th, the Peachtree Road Race, it's become an annual event here, a, a, an endurance tradition in Atlanta. Um, this year is the 50th running of the Peachtree Road Race, which is uh, pretty exciting. Um, and it's also, it has become, over the course of the last couple of years, the uh, the U.S. Road 10K Championship, the Professional Road Running Championship, um, which is also kind of exciting as well. Um, I'm not running it this year. Um, not because I don't want to, but literally just because I didn't sign up. Uh, I didn't try and get a number for it. Um, uh, I was, uh, I was injured about the time they had to sign up way back in, uh, in March and, uh, nobody in my family really, uh, was kind of uncertain for all of us. So none of us, uh, bothered to try and sign up and get numbers or anything else like that. So, um, didn't sign up. And then since I've been on vacation for a little while, I've added a little bit of weight. My, uh, my tissues have deconditioned a little bit. I'm not quite in the shape I want to be. And so, so, so I, I'm not going to be running it this year. I am going to be staying at home and watching it on TV, which when I started thinking about it, I'm actually sort of excited about that. I haven't done that in a really, really long time. Um, I've run it several times, really more times I think than I can count. Um, somewhere around about 10 or 12 times I think that I've run it. Um, my first time ever running it was way back in the summer of 1990. Um, I ran it in 1990, 1991, 1992, um, right around the time that I was in high school. That would have been the summer before my junior year, summer before my senior year, and then summer before my freshman year in college. 
Um, I ran it the summer after my freshman year in college, and that is still my Peachtree Road Race PR, um, what I ran that day, where I finished 76th place, which I thought for, you know, July 4th, i.e. July 4th, 1776, I thought was very appropriate. Um, but um, uh, they have changed the course since uh, since I ran my PR on it. Uh, they've changed it slightly. They changed the finish line. They moved it out of Piedmont Park and put it onto 10th Street uh, right there in front of Grady High School where I worked for 11 years. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, my attitude has actually changed about the Peachtree Road Race over the course of the past several years. You know, Peachtree is this major event in Atlanta, inside the endurance community, but also, as importantly, outside of the endurance community. Um, a lot of people who don't run any other races all year long run the Peachtree Road Race and don't know a thing about track and field and certainly aren't listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. Um, they know about the Peachtree Road Race um, and they pay attention to the Peachtree Road Race and they, they either run the Peachtree Road Race or they cheer for the Peachtree Road Race or something like that every year. Peachtree Road Race is the largest 10K in the world. 60,000 participants. It's, it's a profoundly large race. You don't even totally comprehend how many people that is until you actually go out there and watch it. And you don't even have to watch the whole thing. You just need to stand on the side of the road for 25 minutes and see the constant stream of people packing the road from one side to the other, packing all four to five lanes of Peachtree Street completely and entirely for 20 minutes straight with no end in sight. Uh, to recognize how many people 60,000 people is. Um, but anyway, like I said, my, my attitude's changed a lot about, about it over the course of the last little while. Back in the day, when I was really running a lot and when I was competitive in college and everything, I kind of came to resent it a little bit, to be honest. Um, people, Because people, particularly outside the endurance community, knew the Peachtree Road Race, but they didn't really know a whole lot else about endurance running, they would find out I was a runner and they would always ask me if I had run the Peachtree Road Race. Um, and so, so I would, you know, run the ACC championships or the Penn relays or the Florida relays or some other really competitive race and do really well. People would say, oh, that's great. If you run the PC road race <laughs> and, and I was like, well, no, or yes, but you know, it's not really the, the biggest or most competitive or, or most difficult race that I run. And so I actually came to kind of resent it a little bit. My wife was training for a, uh, for an Ironman several years ago and she was literally at the tail end of, uh, about a 10 hour training day. Um, and she was out for a run. It was starting to get a little bit dark. It was, um, it was like March, I want to say. She was training for Ironman St. George, um, which no longer exists. They took that off the calendar. Um, but she'd had this long bike ride and this long run, and she's finishing up the long run, and she's in this neighborhood, and it's starting to get dark. And these people see her and one of her training partners running, and they say, oh, are y'all training for the Peachtree Road Race? Um, and so, like, like that sort of role in the community, it really kind of made me resent it for a little while. Um, and, and... I didn't blame that on society, and I didn't blame that on, on myself, and I didn't blame that on, on other people. Rather, I blamed that on the Peachtree Road Race, which was totally uh, unfair. Um, and I only mention it for two reasons. Number one is because I think there are a lot of people inside the endurance community, very really competitive people inside the endurance community, uh, particularly collegiate runners, I think, who do still kind of resent it a little bit. Um, and so if you ever kind of get a little pushback from them about it, that's kind of what's in their head there, um, is that that they run really hard and they run really fast and they run a lot of really competitive races, races that are far more competitive and far more, more um, uh, uh, far faster for them um, and far more difficult for them than the uh, than the PC Road Race. But all anybody ever wants to ask them about it is the PC Road Race. Um, 
so, and the other reason why I mentioned, the second reason why I mentioned this is to mention that I have changed a lot about it in my attitude over the course of the last um, 20 years. I didn't run it again um, until the early 2000s, and I ran about two or three times in the early 2000s, um, but because of where we were as a country in the early 2000s, like 2002, 2003, um, there was a real heavy emphasis on crowd control and security. Um, which to me was really off-putting. Um, and so for, for about another decade, I didn't run it again. And then I started running again in my late 30s. I ran it in 2013. I won my age group there, the 35 to 39 age group there in 2014, which I was really, really proud of, as a matter of fact. Um, um, and then in 2015, uh, I was injured. Um, in 2016, I was still kind of injured um, from when I had been run over by that car in, in June of 2015. In fact, when I drove my family to... Uh, the race in 2015, that was the first time I was able to drive a car after I had been run over by the truck uh, while on my bike in 2015, in June of 2015. Um, but then in 2017, I did something that, that um, I had never done before that was um, a really interesting experience. Um, I pushed in the push assist division. Um, way back in the early days of this podcast, a couple of years ago, we had a conversation with Brent and Kyle Pease. Um, and, and we talked to them about um, the push assist division in triathlon, but also in lots of road races and running races here around, um, around Atlanta. We actually had two episodes, uh, two installments of the podcast where we talked about that. The first one was an interview with uh, Brent Pease. Um, and Paul Link, um, both of whom did a lot of the pushing and push assisting. Uh, and the second one we had was with Kyle Pease, um, and he was uh, 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 talked to us a lot about about what it was like to be pushed um, and to be assisted, and and the difficulties on him um, uh, when when racing in those races. Um, and to give kind of a quick recap of that, the 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 work that the 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 Kyle Pease Foundation has done, um, and that they've gotten people like Paul Link, um, and then later many 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 more people and lots of folks I know, um, you know Tim Myers and and Jason Linscott and and uh, Brent Pease himself of course and and Matt Sheckman and um, Gordy Powell and and lots of other people that that, that uh, who listen to the podcast who who have, who have uh, push assisted. Um, and far more than I can name. They literally had 50 people um, doing, or 50 different people that were in the push assist division in the Publix Marathon uh, and half marathon this past uh, this past March. But anyway, um, I uh, I participated in the push assist division in the Peachtree Road Race in 2017, and there was only three uh, three push assist athletes, male athletes. Um, there was. Um, uh, and, and they were assisted by, by Matt Sheckman and Brent Pease and me. Um, I pushed Justin Knight. Um, and, um, and Justin and I uh, were, were able to start a little bit ahead of the race. And we started at the tail end of the wheelchair competitors, but ahead of the runners. Um, and, uh, and finished the course and finished second in that division. Um, but I learned a lot from that. Um, and I, I learned a lot not only about the push assist division and about that process... Um, and, and even the wheelchair division at large, which was super interesting. Um, but I also learned a lot about the meaning of the Peachtree Road Race and its important importance not only in the endurance community, but the in community at large. Um, here's what I mean. The push assist division is considered to be part of the wheelchair race. Um, and the wheelchair race is managed um, and administered 
by the Shepherd Spinal Center in Atlanta. Um, it's actually a little bit a part of the Atlanta Track Club, um, and the Atlanta Track Club are the people who normally actually administer the the uh, who road who manage um, who direct. That's the word I've been looking for. Uh, who direct the uh, the the Peachtree Road Race? Um, so in effect, the wheelchair division and the world record for Road 10K has been set on the Peachtree course several times. Um, uh, the wheelchair division of the Peachy Road Race is kind of a separate race entirely. That um, just happens to be run on the same day on the same course, about an hour before the Peachy Road Race itself. Um, and it has a separate award ceremony. It has a separate director um, and all that sort of thing. And so, anyway, um, it's just kind of interesting to see. Um, um, I was struck by by two things in that regard. The first one was in the push assist division. We're pushing, 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 and we get to the Shepherd Center. Now, the Shepherd Spinal Center, for those of you outside of Atlanta or those of you who are in Atlanta and don't know, is uh, a leading um, a facility um, nationwide uh, for the rehabilitation of spinal injuries. Um, and as you would imagine, there's lots of veterans there. Um, but there's also a lot of people who have, have um, um, suffered accidents or, or who have been in wrecks. Um, and so the, the, the spinal center, um, the shepherd spinal center, like I said, is the chief sponsor, um, of the, the wheelchair division of, uh, the PC road race. Um, and so after the race was over, after we all finished on 10th and Piedmont prior to all the runners starting to arrive, they actually put all of us who were in the wheelchair division on buses. And then they took us over to the shepherd center where we had breakfast and we had the award ceremony for the wheelchair division and all the different divisions inside the wheelchair division. Um, the award ceremony for the runners took place um, in Piedmont Park after the race was done there. And so, like I said, I, I, I came to realize in doing it that it really was kind of two separate races that were run on the same course um, on the same day. Just one of them was about an hour earlier than the other one. So we start the race at about 6.50, and it's going to be earlier this year, but we started the race at about 6.50 a.m. And the Shepherd Center itself actually sits right about the three-mile mile mark of the course. Um, and so we're pushing, pushing, pushing. We go downhill for the first three three miles, and we'll talk more about that here in just a second. But um, we go downhill for the first three miles, and then we start going uphill, and it starts getting really, really, really hard to push this roughly 200-pound um, load, you know, between Justin himself and, and the wheelchair um, up up this hill. Um, and we're all slowing down. Brent's slowing down. Matt's slowing down. Um, you know, all, all, all the, the Kyle's slowing down. Um, Ricardo's slowing down. You know, everybody involved in the division, we're, we're slowing way down. And we know it. And, and, of course, Kyle and Justin and Ricardo, the people that were being pushed, they're, they're cheering for us and they're, 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 they're trying to get us going. But we passed by the Shepherd Center and every resident of the Shepherd Center was out there cheering for us. Every single one. Um, and that's more than 100 different people out there, all of whom are in the throes of severe spinal injury, um, many of whom have, have um, a lot of mobility restrictions who are out there before 7 a.m. Uh, cheering for all of us as we go by. Um, and that was obviously very moving. Um, and it demonstrated to me that, that this matters, um, and it was something that, that, that very much matters to them. Um, so anyway... The second thing that happened is that after we went back to the awards ceremony, um, I sat and had breakfast and, and was in the awards for a little while, and then my wife and an athlete that I coach and some of my wife's friends um, were all walking the race together. Now, the vast majority of people who, who do the Peachy Road Race walk it, and that's great. 
I don't have a problem with that at all. It is blazing hot, particularly with that many people out there. Um, and so, so a lot of people kind of parade on through it, and I think that's fun. Uh, and they're dressed in red, white, and blue. Some of them are, are decked out in bald eagle gear or whatever else, and, and, and they kind of parade on through it, and I think that's great. Um, and so I went out to cheer for them and to see them right about the time that I thought they would be coming by. They were in time section T, I want to say. Um, and, and that gives you an idea of, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, how far back they were. They were about two-thirds of the way through the crowd. Um, and so I went out to cheer for them as they, they came walking by and to see how their, their, their Peachtree Road race was going. Um, and by the time I got out there, um, because a couple of hours had passed and because it was a lot hotter, um, there weren't all the people out there from the Shepherd Center out there cheering anymore. Um, there were a couple, but not a whole lot. And so I was just kind of standing there myself, cheering and clapping for the people as they came by. And while I was out there, a young man came out who was younger than I. He was probably in his 20s. Um, and, and he came out with um, two of his nurses, two of his assistants, and his dad. Um, and I obviously, you know, wasn't going to intrude on their space or on their time. Um, I didn't want to be nosy or rude. Um, but I could, I could overhear, I could pick up from their conversation sort of what his situation was. Um, he had been at the Shepherd Center for about 50 days. Um, and he had been injured in combat. He had been injured in Iraq. Um, and in the 50 days that he had been at the Shepherd Center, he hadn't been outside. Um... And so this was the first time in the roughly 50 days that, that he had been in the Shepherd Center, about 53 days, I wanted to say, um, that, that he had actually gone out of his room. He had left. And the reason why he went outside is because of the Peachy Road Race. Um, he said, there's 60,000 people going by. I want to see this. I want to see what it looks like. I want to experience what this is like. Um, and so he goes out, and he's watching all the people come by. And... Uh, while he's out there, and this is literally the first time he's ever left his room, he kind of, with the help of his assistant, starts to stand up. So he stands up, and they're like, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. You know, you're really doing well. You're, you're, it's, it's amazing. You're standing up. This first time you stood in there, and they're super encouraging to him, which, which I appreciated and, and which I uh, felt very privileged to get to see. Um, and then he starts walking. Um, and uh, I, uh, he starts actually moving down the sidewalk, um, and he makes it about 50 feet, um, and it was the first time he had walked, um, since his spinal injury, and, um, the crowd that was in the Peachy Road Race all burst into applause, um, so how cool was that? Um, but anyway, uh, he makes it about 50 feet down, he stops at, um, at a wall that was right down the street, uh, he sits for a second, he kind of gathers himself, um, and he makes his way back on up the street, the 50 feet there, and once again to the uh, peals of applause and the, the, the thundering approval of the people who are walking through the Peachtree Road Race. Um, and so, it's funny, because I, I reflected on that, and I thought about, alright, why was he outside? And of course, why did he take those first few steps? And then, of course, why do you have an audience for it, which was so cool? Um, and the reason why, of course, was because the PC Road Race. Not because it was any old race. It wasn't just, just the local 5K. Um, it was a major community event that inspired him to go outside and inspired him to want to see it. And it was a big deal around the Shepherd Center itself, too. There was 
a lot of fanfare around the Shepherd Center for the Peachtree Road Race too, because there's a wheelchair division in the Peachtree Road Race. Um, without that wheelchair division, there wouldn't be as much fanfare around Shepherd um, for the Peachtree Road Race. Um, and without that fanfare, uh, that guy wouldn't have gone outside uh, and certainly wouldn't have taken his first steps that day. Now, I don't know where he is now. Um, and I, I, I don't really know his name, um, and I hope he's doing well, and I hope he's continuing to make progress. Um, but that pretty much ended up sealing the deal as far as my, my transformation with my attitude towards the Peachtree Road Race. Um, like I said, there was a time 20-plus years ago, close to close to 30 years ago now, where I did feel a little bit resentful of, of, of the Peachtree Road Race and the way that people inside the, the community at large and even inside the endurance community were a little bit overly focused on it. Um, but I don't feel that way anymore. Um, I think that, that as time has passed and, and as I've grown to be a more mature athlete, I've come to see uh, how important the Peachtree Road Race uh, is um, and the power of it as a community event. So, um, move, <laughs> moving on from there, um, and got to take a few deep breaths as I move on from there, but um, I'll say a couple other things about it, and then there's a couple other things I do want to talk about uh, this week before before uh, before we call it a week here. Uh, an abbreviated episode this week since, since I'm solo um, uh, here without Patrick, but uh, I do want to say, for those who are doing the Peachtree Road Race, um, uh, if you want some, some, some advice, it's to start conservatively. Um, the course is downhill for three miles. Um, well, it's kind of flat for that first mile, but then mile two and mile three are downhill. And they're the perfect downhill pitch. They're just the slightest of slight downhills, about one to two percent, such that you will start running really, really fast, but you won't necessarily be able to tell that you are running downhill, particularly because there's 60,000 people on that course and you can't really see all the hills all that well. And so... Um, a lot of people uh, go out and, and uh, they're prepared and they get to mile two and three and they're like, oh, here we go. Yeah, I'm rolling. Here we go. And, and, they, and they end up running mile two and mile three way too fast. Mile three is mostly uphill. Um, mile five is mostly uphill. Um, and so because of that, a lot of folks who have run too fast in those first couple of miles really slow down a lot in mile three and mile five. Um, that, that hill in mile three is called Heartbreak Hill, and that hill in mile five is called Archbreak Hill because it's right in front of the High Museum of Art. Um, but um, uh, those hills, they're difficult, but they're not terribly difficult. They're not so hard that you cannot run up them, um, but they've got this reputation for being just devastating um, because people tend to run those first two miles a little bit hard. Um, and so if, you, if you're looking for some advice on the course... Um, do be conservative in those those first couple of miles. Um, uh, save it for that those hills there um, on in mile three and mile five. Um, there is a pro race going on. It's the like I said, it's a U.S. 10K Road Championship. It's always been a pretty high end pro race, um, but then a few years ago, um, the uh, new leadership of the Atlanta Track Club they said, well, we want to try and make it really a cel- It's a July Fourth celebration. It's July Fourth race after all. Um, we want to make it more of a celebration of, of United States running. And so um, uh, they quit giving prize monies and appearance fees to, to uh, runners from outside the United States a few years ago. And then uh, last year and this year, it's actually served as a U.S. 10K Road Championship, which is pretty cool. Um, 
there there are track championships and trail championships and and mountain championships. Um, but then there's also road championships. The the track championships were a couple of weeks ago at uh, at Drake University in Iowa, and we can talk about that uh, when Patrick comes back. But uh, it will serve as the U.S. 10K Road Championship. Now, interestingly. The Atlanta Track Club, um, in their announcement uh, on on Facebook and on social media and on their website, um, and and that they emailed out um, uh, talking about the pro field announcement. Interestingly enough, they led that with an announcement that Gwen Jorgensen is going to be taking part. Now, somebody referred to me this week on 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 uh, on social media as a hater of Gwen, Gwen Jorgensen and so I'm going to try to avoid uh, you know sounding like I'm hating on Gwen Jorgensen but I will say that I think it's interesting that the Atlanta Track Club led with her like that was the 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 lead person they said oh Gwen Jorgensen is coming to the Peachtree Road Race 10K um, which I thought was interesting but um, they did mention of course that she was a triathlon world champion and she's an Olympic gold medalist in the in the the uh, the, the uh, in the triathlon which is um, I guess how you could justify saying that, okay, she's the lead person we're going to have. Um, she said, quote, I'm thrilled to be racing the AGC Peachy Road Race. I'm really excited to race the 10K on a hot and hilly course. Well, she will definitely get that. Um, uh, then the mailer, the release went on to say, Jorgensen, whose 10K road personal best is 32-12, will face defending AJC Peachy Road Race champion Alephine Tiyamuk, who has U.S. titles this year at 25K in the half marathon. They will compete against previously announced athletes such as Sarah Pagano, last year's runner-up, Stephanie Bruce, who placed third in the 10,000 meter in Des Moines, and Sarah, Des Moines, that's the 10K track championships, and Sarah Hall, whose 226.20 at the 2018 Ottawa Marathon made her the 10th fastest American woman of all time in the marathon. Molly Seidel, who was runner-up at the 2017 USATF 5K championships, will make her Peachtree debut. Uh, and Allie Buchowski, a Johns Creek, Georgia native who placed second in the 5,000 meter in the NCAA Outdoor Track and Field Championships, will make her professional road racing debut on her home turf, unquote. Um, so I think that, that it will be interesting to see. I think Gwen Jorgensen will be probably in the mix of, of, of those. I, d- I don't think she's the favorite by any stretch. Um, the favorite has to be Alephine Tuliamuk. Um, who, um, as they mentioned there, she's the defending champion after all, um, but she's also won U.S. titles this year at 25K and half marathon, and she's um, she's a brick wall. Um, she's she's going to be difficult to beat. Um, and then, of course, last year's runner-up uh, as well, uh, Sarah Pagano. I mean, you have to kind of favor her as well. So, so we'll see. Sarah Hall, um, who they mentioned is coming off the Ottawa Marathon here. The t- the, the Peachy Road Race is going to be her last sort of post-marathon race, which I think is interesting. She sort of spun off some of her marathon fitness into a few more races. Um, but I had a little bit of inside information that she's actually doing uh, – she actually did today – a, a half marathon in Australia, and she ran 109. She ran super fast. She ran better than 520 pace for for that half marathon uh, there in in Australia. But she's going to be have to be flying in from Australia to to do the Peachtree Road Race. So it's hard to imagine that she's going to be able to to really put in her best race, um, both given the marathon fatigue, the half marathon fatigue, and then of course the travel fatigue. As someone who is struggling right now with a lot of jet lag and travel fatigue. Um, We'll have to see how Sarah Hall does, um, and so so I wouldn't put money on her for that reason. But it's hard to bet against her, though. The feature male runner on 
the ATC mailer on the ATC announcement is the person that, that I think is, in fact, the favorite. Um, uh, a guy named Lopez Lamong. Uh, Lopez Lamong won the 10,000 meters uh, just a couple of weeks ago in Des Moines, Iowa, at the USATF 10K Championships that I was mentioning before um, at, at Drake University there. Um, and so he's the, the current track 10K champion, uh, current track 10k title holder um he's uh, been an olympian a couple of times uh, for the united states he actually carried the torch for the united states at the 2008 olympic opening ceremonies in beijing um but uh, in addition to him the uh chris derrick um is going to be there uh, uh bernard legat uh, who set the master's record and has been a five-time olympian as a matter of fact but set the master's record there in 2017 running 28:42, which is just insane um um uh, Shadrach Biwat will be there. Tyler Pinnell will be there. Tyler Pinnell is from Zap Fitness, you might remember. Uh, and Shadrach Biwat and Tyler Pinnell were the top American finishers at the Boston Marathon this year. Um, Sam Chalanga, who's the reigning tw- USATF 25-kilometer champion, um, and the 2016 Olympic marathoner Jared Ward um, will be there. So so a pretty solid men's field as well. Um, uh, the thing that stands out to me, looking at both the men's and women's field, and I think this might be just because it's a 10K road championship, is how diverse the runners in the field are. Like, it's not all pure 10,000 meter people. Um, it's kind of a mix of marathoners and some 5K people, and and uh, it's just sort of makes for an interesting mix. And and I think that 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 should lend to um, a more exciting race. And so, as I said, I'll be sitting at home and watching it on on Wednesday morning. And so, uh, uh, by all means, perhaps if you wanna wanna Facebook message with me with with me or or or, or, or go back and forth about that, I'll I'll be watching alongside you. I look forward to that. Um, one other race I do want to talk about here, and and as I mentioned, there's lots of stuff happening, and I'll, I'll mention a few kind of quick takes at the very end here, but um, without Patrick being here, I didn't want to drone on and on and on solo here uh, in our first, you know, back from summer vacation episode, um, but I also did want to talk about the Western States 100, uh, the Western States Endurance Run that took place last weekend. Um, now, for those of you who don't know, the Western States Endurance Run, the Western States 100, um, it was originally a horse race. Um, um, it's probably the, uh, the most... Um, well-known and and well-respected ultra race in the United States. Um, and ultra runners attempt to qualify for Western states in the same way that marathon runners attempt to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Uh, the difference is that the, the Boston Marathon has tens of thousands of competitors and Western states has about 350 competitors. Um, they're limited in the number of people they can have uh, based on the fact that they go through some, some uh, national forest. But anyway, as I said, it was originally a horse race. It was a Western States endurance ride. Um, and back in 1974, a guy named Gordy Ainsley, um, who had done it with his horse a couple of times. He had done it in 1971. He had done it in 1972 with his horse. In 1973, he had DNF'd with his horse because they had some sort of mechanical issue. In 1974, his horse came up lame. Um, and so he said, well, I'm going to run it instead and see if I can get under the, the 24-hour time limit, which was uh, part of the horse race. Um, and uh, he ran it in 23 hours and 48 minutes. Um and uh, <laughs> and so proving, therefore, that a person could do it without a horse in, in under the one-day limit there. Um, over the course of the next few years, um, uh, a couple of other people sort of lined up alongside the horses and, and ran it. 
Um, and then in 1977, they had the first ever running event. They actually had, okay, we're going to embrace this and we're going to have a human category. Um, and in that first human category, the first official Western States 100, uh, 16 people ran that first one. Um, and then in 1978, they actually split it off and they made it into its own event. Um, and then, like I said, it's grown over time to where now it's right around 350 people. Um, and it's considered to be very prestigious. Um, the most prestigious, I would say, uh, ultra race in the United States. Um, there are others that are more competitive and there's others worldwide that are perhaps more competitive, more prestigious. But I would say that the, the Western States 100 is probably the most storied. Um, it, uh, it takes place in Northern California, um, around the Lake Tahoe area. It starts in Squaw Valley and it finishes down in Auburn, California. Um, it's a hundred miles. Of course, there's 18,000 feet of elevation gain for, uh, throughout it. Um, by contrast, the Peachy Road Race, which is a fairly difficult race, has about 250 feet of elevation gain. Um, and it's also very hot. Um, this year it was 97 degrees at the 62 mile point. Um, and it was 106 degrees at the mile 78 river crossing. Yes, there is a river crossing uh, during the race at mile 78, no less. Um, but even given that 97 to 106 degrees, um, basically hovering there around 100 degrees, it was merely the ninth hottest year uh, in the, uh, the history of the, the Western States 100. Uh, nonetheless, uh, a guy named Jim Walmsley, who is a, a brilliant ultra runner who's just been on fire over the course of the last uh, uh, few years, uh, set a new men's course record running 14.30.04. That's 14 hours, 30 seconds, and 4 seconds. Um, and a woman named Courtney DeWalter uh, finished the second fastest time ever by a woman. Um, and so some really brilliant, amazing performances there at the Western States 100, despite the fact that it was so hot. And, of course, it's so hard, uh, so so hot uh, and difficult and hilly and everything else. So anyway, um, Walmsley's race, he was on record pace um, for about the first 30 miles. Um, he was about the same pace that, that to, to, to meet the record. Uh, and then after the 30 mile mark, he really began to pick it up like a whole lot. Um, it kind of went on and on and on like that until about mile 78. Um, he just kind of kept on going faster and faster and faster than the course record splits until mile 78. He was 26 minutes under record pace for this 100-mile race, um, which is pretty stunning. Again, this is not a new race. This is a race that's been around for uh, more than 40 years now, um, and and it's a prestigious race. And so all the greatest ultra runners in American history have, have run this race um, and, and lots of other ones from, from outside the United States as well. Um, and, and nonetheless, at mile 78, three quarters of the way through the race, he was 26 minutes under uh, record pace. Um, he slowed down a little bit uh, over the course of that last 22 miles. Uh, he was actually held up by a mother bear and her cubs at mile 98. Um, two cubs, he like sort of stumbled on them, and, and the cubs went up a tree real fast, and the mom bear stood there on the trail protecting the cubs. Needless to say, he could not go running by at that point, and so he was held up for a few minutes at that point at mile 98. Um, but nonetheless, he still ended up beating the uh, the course record by about 16 minutes. Um, so a profoundly uh, impressive performance there by Jim Walmsley at the uh, the Western States 100. That when we're recounting 2018 and thinking about some of the most impressive performances, uh, that has to be one that's considered on not a day at all uh, in which the conditions would necessarily favor fast times. He beats the uh, the course record by 16 minutes on a difficult course and a course that's been run by all sorts of uh, really brilliant runners. Um, honorable mention in the men's race goes to a guy named Nick Bassett. Nick Bassett. Uh, Nick Bassett's now the oldest Western States 100 finisher. He ran 29 minutes uh, or 29 hours, nine minutes and 42 seconds. Um, the time limit is 30 hours. Um, 
you get a special belt buckle if you go under 24 hours, um, but you get you get um, a belt buckle. You do get a finisher belt buckle if you do go under 30 hours. That's the course limit. Uh, like I said, he ran 29.09.42, uh, and Nick Bassett is 73 years old. 73 years old, running, running a profoundly difficult 100-mile race in under 30 hours at age 73. Um, yeah, it's super impressive. Uh, and super inspiring, as a matter of fact. Um, in the women's race, there was an Australian woman named Lucy Bartholomew who went out super fast. She went out with the men, um, and she was on course records pace for about the first 30 miles. Not just with the men, but like with the lead men. She was like in the top 10 overall of the race in that first 30 miles. Um, at the 24-mile mark, um, uh, she was 20, 18 minutes ahead of Courtney DeWalter. Um, and and Courtney DeWalter wasn't even in second place at that point. She was way back around like 10th place at that point. Um, but by mile 62, DeWalter had caught up and passed Lucy Bartholomew, um, and she was about 34 minutes behind record pace at that point. Um, at the finish, she fin- at the end, she f- finished about 40 minutes behind record pace, um, and so she lost 34 minutes off record pace essentially in the first half of the race, and then lost only an additional six minutes in the second half, which means that she closed really well. She closed very strongly. She closed at basically course record pace um, after giving up a lot of time to the course record pace in in the first half of the race. Um, So ultimately, she finished in 17 hours, 27 minutes flat. Uh, The course record is 16 hours, 47 minutes, and 19 seconds uh, from a runner named Ellie Greenwood. Um, um, Walmsley averaged about 8.40 per mile, and that includes stops. Uh, DeWalter averaged about 10.30 per mile, and again, that includes stops. And so... The way that works and the way this works in all of ultra racing, it's just like if you're running a 5K, uh, your local 5K. If you stop at the mile mark and drink a whole bunch of water and hang out for a little while and change your shoes and stuff like that, and then you keep on going, whatever your time at the finish of the 5K, that's your finish time. Um, and and so that 14 hours um, and and 30 minutes and 4 seconds that Jim Walmsley ran, that, that 17 hours and... Uh, it's 27 minutes that, that uh, Courtney DeWalter ran. Those include all those times that they spent stopping. And so, yeah, that's their average mile, but they're actually running faster than that. Um, so, in other words, just to kind of put it in, in, in other terms, um, let's say that, that you are running, you stop at the five-mile mark, and you're running 10-minute pace. And so that five-mile mark, um, you run 10-minute pace, you get to the five-mile mark right at 50 minutes. Um, if you then stop for 10 minutes, you're now at one hour. And so your average mile split when you start running again at the five mile mark at the hour mark is 12 minutes per mile. Even though you're running at 10 minutes a mile, your average is 12 minutes a mile. Um, so kind of keep that in mind with Walmsley. I say he averaged 840 per mile. That includes those stops. DeWalter averaged 1030. That includes those stops. Uh, so in fact, their, their actual running pace was probably at least about a minute per mile faster than that. Um, so a couple of kind of things we can learn from their races. Um, along those lines, the first one is to take it easy at aid stations. Um, the, there's a website called I Run Far, irunfar.com, and they were tracking the race and commenting on the race, um, and um, they were scouting the race as well. They sort of sent their reporters out onto the course and everything. Um, and in writing up afterwards, they said, Quote, the IFAR run team consistently reported that Jim spent minutes at a time at the aid stations. That is, anywhere from three to five minute stays were regular for him. He'd sit, take off his shoes, get iced and watered down, and feed, unquote. Um, and so I think it's interesting that, that, that um, American ultra runners tend to have kind of this very American ideal that you got to keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. Don't stop, don't stop. Any stopping you do is bad. And he's not, you know, 
vacationing at the spots. He's going for three to five minutes, you know. Um, but but a lot of people would blow in and blow out in 30 seconds, and he's actually taking three to five minutes. Um, that enabled him, of course, to run a little bit faster during the times that he was actually running, and then ultimately he's able to, to, to get the course record. So um, I think that's something to consider um, if, in fact, you're planning on doing ultra runs and you want to run them fast. Um, maybe taking a little bit more time at those those aid stations would, would be worthwhile. Um, the other quick take, and... You know, something I said when I was talking about the Peachtree Road Race a few minutes ago, but it certainly goes for 100-mile races here as well. Start conservatively. Um, Jim Walmsley, again, he was essentially on course record pace for the first 30 miles or so. Uh, and then he ultimately broke the course record by 16 minutes. And so uh, eventually got to a place where he was more than 28, 26 minutes under record pace. And so, um, yeah, really, really turned it up after the uh, about one-third of the way through. Um, same thing for Colton and DeWalter. Like I said, at the 24-mile the mark, um, she was uh, in 10th place. She was 18 minutes behind the winner. Um, and then ultimately she ended up coming on very strong and, and winning the race by a pretty significant margin there. Um, it's also worth mentioning here, Courtney DeWalter was also interviewed recently. This was prior to uh, Western States um, in, by Deadspin. Uh, and there was an interesting article about her on Deadspin. And the, the name of the article was, quote, Ultra runner Courtney DeWalter explains why she runs through blindness and hallucinations, um, unquote. Um, but uh, in writing about her, they said, quote, of the 51 ultras she's entered since 2011, she's been the first woman across the finish line in 27 of them. She's won 11 outright. Take, for example, last October's Moab 200 endurance run, which is actually 238 miles. Courtney won that. Not just the women's division, she won the whole shebang, 10 hours ahead of the second place runner, who was a guy. This was on hilly trails through desolate canyons over the course of almost 58 hours. The prize was a homemade plaque. Did I mention that she quit a perfectly good teaching job to do this full time? Unquote. <laughs> and so, yeah, clearly a brilliant runner here. And so they, they, they probe a little bit deeper into her mindset. And, and I think there's some interesting things that she had to say in that interview there. Um, uh, in 2012, she dropped out of her first 100-mile race at the 60-mile mark, um, but she was kind of thinking back on it later on, and she said in thinking about that DNF, that one DNF that she has on her record in 2012, she said, quote, I didn't realize that suffering is normal or that our brains can help us overcome physical suffering. I was not prepared for the battle. Just like you train your body to be stronger, you can train your mind. It's amazing what our bodies can do but even more amazing what our brains can do, unquote. Um, so, yeah, super interesting. And, and kind of in terms of, you know, the power of your brain to, to, to push beyond your body here, she said, uh, the writer in writing about her said, uh, Courtney's brain seems to be good at dispassionately observing, for example, that her body has been shivering on the side of the trail for a couple of hours, trying not to lie in its own vomit and declaring, yeah, doable, carry on. Stuff she's carried on through concludes, but is not limited to blindness that came on in the last 12 miles of a 100-mile trail race and the subsequent falls and bleeding head injury, fire hose vomiting, hallucinations, toenails falling off, 96-degree heat, hail, and quads so swollen that they appeared to be swallowing her kneecaps. The thing is, before her first, uh, before her feet have even deflated, Courtney is thinking about how cool that was. Their legs did not actually fall off, and planning how much farther she'll push herself next time. Unquote. Um, so you're talking about somebody who, who is definitely taking the most pleasant exhaustion to the next level, um, um, and 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 I certainly appreciate that. Now, she does say in the interview that, that if you have bones sticking out of your legs, yeah, there's a place at which you should probably stop. But but I do think it's interesting that she says that that um, sort of the, the routine suffering that takes place as a result of, of racing 
um, is not any reason to, to back off or to back down here. Um, uh, she's clearly, for her, the pursuit of ultra-marathoning and ultra-races uh, is, is to see how much she can do. Um, my wife has said the same thing. That that's what inspired her before. Let's see what we can do. Let's see what the limits are. Uh, there was an ultra-runner named Marshall Ulrich who wrote a book called Running on Empty. and He said basically the same thing. Um, he ran the, the Badwater uh, 130, um, which is a, a very notorious ultra-marathon here in the United States. He ran from, it finishes on top of Mount Whitney in California. He ran up to the top of Mount Whitney and said, I think I can do that again. And so the next year he ran up to the top and then back down to the bottom after the race was over. And then he did that twice, up, down, up, down for a total of, what's that make, 520 miles. Then he decided to do that unsupported. So he actually carried a, 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 a baby carriage effectively with him in order to put all his stuff in there so he wouldn't have to actually have a crew to assist him there on the run itself. Um, so again, this idea of, of exploring limits is a big, big motivator for her and for him uh, and for a lot of endurance athletes here. Um, and with that in mind, this is the last thing I'll say about her, a quotation from her from that Deadspin article, quote, I am so curious about the potential of our bodies and brains. The way I'm investigating that is by running really far distances. If there was something, a race longer than 238 miles, I'd definitely consider it. And no, I don't think those types of pain and suffering are signs that you should stop. I mean, I troubleshoot and try to fix what's causing it, but my solution is usually just to keep going. Once I pushed through those things, I was a normal functioning human 48 hours later. Our ability to bounce back is part of what's so cool. You can endure a lot if you set your mind to it and push through. Unquote. So, very cool there, and some, some, some words to, to not only train by, but live by from, uh, from, from Courtney DeWalter, who uh, ran so incredibly at the Western States 100 this past weekend. Uh, touch on a couple of quick things. The Tour de France starts next weekend, starting a week late, you probably saw. It should be a good race. There are, there's a team time trial in Stage 3, and then there's a heavily cobbled stage in Stage 9, and then you have the mountains, and so there should be some real time gaps going to the mountains. It should be pretty exciting. You might have also seen that just today, just this morning, the ASO, the Amory Sports Organization, which is basically the organization that owns the Tour de France and that directs the Tour de France, disinvited Chris Froome, um, who we've talked about a few times, who has won the past three Grand Tours in a row um, and won the Giro in such dramatic fashion, um, uh, has now been disinvited from the Tour de France. Now, it's sort of a, a difficult situation because the governing body of the sport, the UCI, says that he can do it, but the directors of the race said that he can't. It would be as if the the Atlanta Track Club said to somebody at the PC Road Race this week, no, we don't want you to come. You are not going to be able to compete for the U.S. Road 10K Championship. Um, and so so it, it makes for sort of a difficult situation here. Um, his, uh, his, his team, Team Sky, has already appealed to the, uh, the National Olympic Committee in France there to see if they can get him reinstated. Um, they've talked about going to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, but the Court of Arbitration for Sport moves at a glacial pace, so there's no way they're going to be able to get that worked out by next weekend. So we'll have to see over the course of the next several days what ends up happening with that. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely update you on that the next time we come on to the podcast, because by then... The, uh, the Tour de France will be in full swing. Likewise, updating you on things we've talked about before, you might have seen this week that Caster Semenya 
Virginia has announced that she is going to be challenging those uh, those new testosterone rules in that court of arbitration for sport in uh, in Switzerland. Uh, she called them quote discriminatory, irrational, and unjustifiable unquote. Uh, and then she argued that she should be able to compete the way that she was born without, quote, being obliged to alter her body by any medical means, unquote. She continued, quote, I just want to run nat- naturally the way I was born. It is not fair that I am told I must change. It is not fair that people question who I am. I am Mogadi Castor Semenya. I am a woman and I am fast, unquote. Um, the IAAF in response said, quote, we stand ready to defend the new regulations at the Court of Arbitration should we be asked to do so, unquote. So um, as we said when we first talked about this a couple of months ago, it's an ongoing thing. The rules aren't set to go into effect until November 1st. We expected there to be legal challenges, and so there are legal challenges to that. And that's going to wrap us up. There are so many other things we could talk about. I'm already nearing the hour mark here solo. I don't even have Patrick with me. I didn't even do the solo movie review, at least except for the couple of lines that I mentioned. Uh, we didn't talk about Kellen Taylor at Grandma's Marathon. We didn't talk about the U.S. Championship, the track championships at Drake. We didn't talk about uh, the new study um, on the psychological predisposition that some people uh, might have to running injury, which I know you're going to be interested about. We'll talk about that next time. We didn't talk about this new magazine uh, called Lope Magazine. They are brand new this month. And their first feature article is called The History of the United States According to the Women's Steeplechase. I am very excited to read that. We didn't talk about local triathlete, pro-triathlete Haley Chura and fellow podcaster Haley Chura uh, having a convincing and fabulous win at the Coeur 70.3. Lots more to talk about that we simply don't have time for today, but, but other things for, for you to look forward to as we come off our summer vacation as we continue to make our way through the summer of 2018. So... Thanks again for listening, everybody. Uh, We appreciate it, and we will look forward to talking to you next time. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, don't forget to check us out on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance, at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, or at facebook.com slash itlcoaching and performance. And check out our other sponsor, Casey the Travel Planner, at facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner, M-E-V, um, or at caseytravelplanner.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Hollander, this is George Darden. We appreciate you joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.